0: Many fleet assets like locomotives, aircraft, and military weapon systems generate a lot of data. As we've previously discussed, fleet asset lifetimes typically span decades, and a large portion of the world's fleet assets have outdated onboard technology. This provides a major opportunity to run more profitable, safer, and smarter operations by upgrading fleet assets with modern technology. Data science is an interdisciplinary field related to data mining, machine learning, statistics, and big data analysis. It focuses on extracting knowledge from typically large data sets to solve business problems. In this episode, special guests Ellie Daw and Dan Morton discuss how we can apply data science principles to fleet data to make fleets smarter and safer. Ellie Daw is the product lead of anomaly detection and data science at Shift5. Her focus is aligning analysis with scalability and impact for customer data sets. She comes from a background in applied cryptography, secure protocol design, and industry research for emerging technologies such as quantum and private computation. Dan Morton is a data scientist at Shift5. His focus is on solving real-world customer problems with data. He earned his PhD in particle physics, searching for rare events in large data sets. Dan, Ellie, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Great. It's great to see you. I am super excited about this topic. I think when people look at fleet assets like locomotives and aircraft, um, as we've talked about in the show, they don't typically think of these as giant pieces of technology that are throwing off tons of data. Um, But in fact, they are. And um, we can apply some of the great inferential techniques uh, that we've learned in the data science fields like data mining, statistics, machine learning, and AI to these things uh, and get some pretty incredible results. So, I'm super excited to talk to you guys. Um I think maybe for a general audience, we could sharpen up a couple of key concepts so that we we can circle in on on what exactly we're talking about. So, maybe let's start with a simple one, which is uh what are fleet assets?
1: So, uh one of our focuses as shift five of course is like transportation. So, if you think about a uh, train fleet maybe, um, the fleet assets are just, like, the actual locomotives that are kind of a part of this, like, group of technology, whether the technology is kind of on the, like, I don't know, tech side or the mechanical side, right? Just anything that sort of makes up the, the items that are, like, driving business for a big system. So in transportation, maybe locomotives or, like, tanks or whatever. Um,
2: Logistics, you have trucks or trains as well, um, possibly even aircraft. So all of these assets which are then used to, which assemble, as the name implies, fleet or a large group of these vehicles and the things used to directly support
0: them. And, I mean, these assets predate um, the transistor, right? You think about Ford's Model T, um, the locomotive. These are storied features in American history, Um Why do they have so many computers in them now if they were working for decades before the advent of the transistor?
2: So that has a lot to do with actually being able to control very clearly what's um, going on within the devices, being able to monitor it, and make these systems more efficient. Over time, of course, the other issue is with analog systems, you need a million specialists, and it becomes much simpler to have everything running on certain protocols, uh, just becoming a digital device which you can control and throw commands in between things. So it actually simplifies who and what you need in terms of resources. And it also sim- and it also improves efficiency down the line and all these other issues. Uh, all the time you have analog systems which have a tendency to slowly wander off their baselines and start throwing off incorrect things and other issues like that coming up um, while these digital systems make it very easy to control, and monitor, and doing things like that. And in fact, this isn't—I would say this isn't completely unique to vehicles. This has been true for a lot of devices, which rely on the same physical principles that they did a hundred years ago. Um, and maybe this surprised a lot of people, or maybe—but maybe not. But even if you think of like your dishwasher or something like that, what's different about it is there's a computer in it now,
1: right? Um, favorite my favorite example is like the smart toaster right yeah oh man
0: you never knew you needed it but once you have it how could you live without it
1: I think the other like interesting thing like Dan kind of drilled into operating things but I think just flipping to like user experience that's another like very important implication of adding these digital components to like traditionally non-digital systems
0: yeah so it's it's economic reasons you know the manufacturers of these devices can make things that are more reliable more flexible more robust with a more um, general purpose labor pool like you were talking about dan and from a user perspective the allure of having electronic um, components allows you to have way more featureful interfaces and add a lot of convenience to things right Um,
1: With with less like domain specific knowledge required, as Dan had kind of alluded to. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think additionally, uh, you know, we've seen even a renaissance in electronic components with respect to who can program these things and who can design these circuits, because for a long time, hardware was the domain of hardwired circuits and transistors and integrated circuits that have very specific input outputs. And then. We talked about this, Ellie, uh, a couple of weeks ago. But you know, microcontrollers—these reprogrammable integrated circuits that run software—are all over the place now. They're super cheap. You, for a couple bucks, you can put a microcontroller in place of dozens of integrated circuits. And now you have software engineers that can program hardware. Of course, it's a little—you know—embedded circuits are, are a little more complicated, you know, dealing with real time operating systems and things. But in principle, you have people that are writing C rather than, you know, designing um, circuits and KiCad or something like that. So I think at many levels, um, these things are becoming more uh, more and more accessible to different pools of labor. So we see this landscape of digital components getting integrated onto these these fleet assets into our kitchens at home all over the place, right? Um but it was these these things tend to happen by degrees, right? You, you see model years of cars integrating more and more electronic components all of a sudden, you know, they're they're fly-by-wire now. All all these loco- um these these cars are fly-by-wire where 15 years ago that wasn't the case, right? Um, but one thing we've commented on often uh, in this podcast is that no one really thought about where we were going by packing these assets full of digital components, and so we've gotten to this place where you know there. There are tons of digital components in these systems, but they weren't designed from first principles for the digital age. And so we've talked a lot about what the cybersecurity implications of that are, of which there are many. Um, I think in in this show, we're going to focus more on, okay, well, there's some doom and gloom out there about how all these systems are just totally vulnerable and the only cybersecurity they have in them is physical security. And we know how dubious that is. Um, But instead, now I think, we, we have a real opportunity because these, you know, Dan, you alluded to these things having congealing around protocols and throwing off tons of data. So they're talking, these things are talking to us. It's just that in a lot of cases we aren't listening. We're not collecting this data and using that data for operational and maintenance purposes. Um, that could help you run your business more efficiently or, um, operate a, you know, a metropolitan passenger locomotive surface more safely because the, the assets are getting maintained. But these assets are around for a long time, right? Like decades and decades and decades. So I guess one question that I think a lot of people have is, well, if you've got a decades old locomotive, sure, it's got digital components in it, but it's sort of stuck, right? Like how can you how can you retrofit these things um, to, to bring them into the 21st century?
1: I think, I mean, part of it you alluded to before, but like the data is already being generated, right? All we have to do is kind of tune in and listen for it. Um, I think part of what's really powerful about doing that data collection is that a lot of times, like I, I know a couple of our customers at least, these are things that they've never had visibility into. And so it almost like takes them a couple of iterations looking through the data set to really understand like, oh, like all of this is available to us. Well, that can help me do X, Y, Z. Um, So i think just like providing visibility and, and, you know, grabbing what's already there and kind of marrying that with like insights that we may have available on like newer systems, but not older ones.
2: I think it's also important to realize when systems actually became digital at all versus analog. um, And that's, you're talking about more seventies eighties era is when most of these things switched over to uh, a digital bus of some sort. Yeah. It's may not, you're not going to be dealing with the same speeds or density of, systems nowadays, but you still have digital data. And that's the important aspect versus a completely analog system. Um, so almost all of your industrial hardware, what earlier, I think PLCs as they're called, devices like that yeah. are still communicating through digital uh, means. So you're still controlling that way. So in fact, all you we really need to do to access that and give people access is to tap into it, right? In many ways, yeah, we have a pipeline, we have a flow going on, there's this flow going on in your device, and it's almost like adding in a tap where you can take a sample and see what's happening.
0: And and how hard is adding a tap to these systems? I mean, are they designed in a way where that's that's really difficult to do? Or, you know, give me a sense of, of in general, how hard that is.
1: Yeah, usually this is, is not hard at all. Um, a lot of times, like if you think about, Cars, for example, they have CAN buses in them, and CAN is a broadcast network, right? So all we have to do is like also listen on that network, and we can see kind of everything that all of the devices are already seeing.
0: Yeah, a lot of these systems were designed around open standards, right? Like uh, heavy equipment. There's the uh, SAE Society for Automotive Engineers J1939, which sits on top of CAN, and the express purpose is, hey, if you're going to design a a component that interoperates on the CAN protocol, use this message format when you're reporting this quantity because uh, it allows you to interoperate with all the other stuff that's on there and sell your product to to OEMs that are going to integrate these onto, onto platforms. Um, so yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's like, we were talking about the, the, the thing that makes these buses so vulnerable from a cybersecurity perspective is also a huge opportunity because all this data is unencrypted. It's all available on the bus and it's all there for you to just sort of sit and, and and collect. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think, I think the standardization especially makes it a lot easier to like build analytics because you, you kind of don't have to make something that's like bespoke for every, you know, type of message anyone could ever think up. Um, But I also think it's kind of extra exciting when you think about combining, like Dan was talking earlier about analog versus um, digital means of communication. And you, you don't have to focus your analysis on just one, right? Like you can combine as many of these or like multiple digital, you know, multiple protocols, for example, or like a combination of analog and digital to sort of like coalesce everything to something meaningful.
0: Great. So, so the idea is, it's it's not terribly difficult from a conceptual perspective to to tap onto these buses, collect the data. Um, in a lot of cases, you you have readily available telemetry paths like four G LTE or five G, or you have um, you know Wi Fi that's available or, or Ethernet if it's like a sort of static static platform that isn't, isn't moving. So you can pull all this data back. Let's talk a little bit about what do you do with that data? So there's some simple data engineering things, of course, right? You can, you can take the data and you can aggregate it and build uh, queries that are important, uh, alert based on, on some rules. Um, what are some examples in, you know, the locomotive industry that, that you guys have seen where simple aggregations and queries have, have delivered real value and solved problems for customers?
2: So right off the bat, um, one thing that was solved in the past, so before me, was finding engines which were idling for far too long. Um, And some things that we're looking at now, which I think will be quite easy to find, are issues such as, um, well, there's one issue that I was thinking about because it's related to something I've done or had to deal with in the past is where the brake lines have this tendency to, the air brakes have a tendency to get clogged up. Um, Now,
0: one thing that occurs when you have any sort of system that's getting clogged in some way or another um, is that the motor that, the pieces that are interacting with it or trying to, they're actually running the air brake system itself, applying
2: pressure, things like that, all function differently when that occurs. Um, they have to work to different degrees, essentially, after that, depending on where they exist in that line. Um, and so what you should see happen is some characteristic uh, functions that will begin to come out and change. Now, right now, a lot of engineers are used to, Popping systems open, or letting, or there's a catastrophic failure. Um, the system goes offline for a huge period of time, and you lose millions. And that's how it works. But instead, if you can just clean out a system, pop a system open, and know to clean it out because of some weird weather or something like that that occurred, then you might be able to do that. And what we should be able to identify is these responses between aggregate these different responses from different pumps, which are which. In some cases will only appear as changes in voltages right something very small like that but by looking at this large multi-dimensional system where we have all these information and knowing where failure has occurred we should be able to eke out and give a warning that's very clear to an engineer hey this needs to be done or else yeah, the system is going to break down. And you know what? You don't want your air brakes to break. It's why everything shuts down.
0: And not only is it a safety issue, but when you run these things until failure, oftentimes the repairs are going to be far costlier than than, than if you do preventive maintenance on it, right? So, Dan, is this an example of data science? And, you know, what is data science? So data
2: science, what's fun about the term data science is it's still evolving, I would say, uh, as a field. It's um, still defining where it is and where, it, where it, sort of where it begins and where it ends. But in general, it is you're dealing with uh, lar- you're performing data analysis on large sets of data where you're trying to derive interesting relationships, build models to characterize it or glean insight into from these very large sets of data. So, where does it begin and where does it begin? Well, because it has a lot of crossover with your basic data analysis, um, statistics, um, and machine learning and that sort of end of computer science because a data scientist is gonna be building models, experimenting with brand new machine learning techniques, trying to build them uh, in new ways, like machine learning, like somebody who like somebody who might have the title of machine learning engineer, like that. But we're also gonna be focused a lot more on sort of the mathematical insight behind what's actually driving the, what's actually driving these relationships within the data itself. So it's, but it's still at a stage where things are evolving. Things we might have a more clear definition, clear cut five years down the road as data science branches off into multiple fields per se. Because right now, sometimes it's used as a catch-all, but I like to see it as sort of this um, higher level study of these very large aggregate data sets, which have which are very large in scope, where you have a lot of different variables. So, like I said before, you might have a huge switchboard of thirty two hundred variables in the training data set. And that's, and then we're trying to use techniques in order to actually really gain human usable insights.
1: I think a lot of it, like I don't come from a data science background and kind of learning about it and like being in kind of settings where it's super useful. To me, it's like the the data science kind of brain is able to pick and choose what types of like statistical um, techniques, I guess, should be applied to a certain problem and, and combining them in different ways to kind of get the best like performance or the best outcome or whatever from a certain scenario.
0: It, it's such an interesting question to me because data science can mean so many different things to so many different people. And w- one of the... Along the lines of exactly what what you guys are saying, one of the ways I've heard it described is, you know, there are basically three components that come together in a Venn diagram. You've got computer science, um, you know, the ability to program your intent into a computer, uh, subject matter expertise about whatever the problem domain is that you're trying to solve, if it's cybersecurity, if it's maintenance, operations, optimization type stuff, if it's, you know, geology or whatever the, the subject matter is. And then grounding in what is essentially derivatives of probability theory and mathematics, right? So understanding uh, statistics or machine learning or AI or, or measure theory or like whatever whatever thing you're 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 into on the on the probability and, and modeling side. And um, to your point, Dan, I, I think it, it's all about problems of inference. Like we have this inferential question are the brakes going to break, um, you know, uh, which which locomotives are at idle um, by accident. You know, there are these questions that involve uncertainty and the role of, of a lot of data science or people that practice statistics or machine learning or, or data mining is to answer those inferential questions with, with a repeatable kind of piece of software and, and a whole lot of data, right? Um, and it's, it's fascinating to your point, Dan, I think like all of these things are evolving so quickly. And, um, you know, for people that want to get into data science, there are so many, uh, entrees into, into this field. And I feel like the evolution of, um, you know, Python and that ecosystem has really made it much more accessible to a broader range of, uh, range of people. I know when I was in grad school for statistics that we, we used R right, which is, um, kind of like, a, it's a, it's a, it's a language only only a mother could love. Um, it's really not,
1: yeah, not as like a quick, not as easy to come up to speed on as Python. It, it sure
0: like. isn't. No, no, it sure isn't. Um, and and Dan, you now, in, in your theoretical physics days, um, what was it? It was called Root, is that right? The uh... Yep, it was experimental <laughs> physics, to be fair.
2: Um, experimental it was, physics, uh, Root, which was output by CERN. Um, it's also actually being slowly, so at least part. People are going to disagree with me back and forth about this, but I know University of Michigan, for example, is phasing out uh, teaching root in C plus as its main course for Python. But it was an interesting take on. It's made improvements, but it had it was an interesting take on an interpretive C C based language, which had all sorts of fun aspects to it, um, making it very which can make it challenging to use or, or understand right away, but it was still very good at handling at the time large amounts of data back when, you know, the CERN was the largest producer of data in the world, right? Um, There was a time where it absolutely had the highest amount of data coming in, and that's now been dwarfed by uh, Silicon Valley, but it, you know, it did
1: great for what it was trying to do and put things in certain
2: trees, but it definitely made a lot of things much harder than they had to be, and (laughs) when I go back to yeah, when I go back to it, it's just like, okay, well, we're getting, I'm kind of glad I'm moving on from that. Yeah. Uh,
0: I, I guess uh, the, the amount of um, Twitter likes and ad clicks are uh, rapidly subsuming the measurements of subatomic particles, which, uh, you know, we can comment on whether that's a good or bad thing. I think it may be a, another show. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's
1: a, a good, different uh, conversation, uh, but a good one too.
0: Yeah.
2: It's just, yeah. And what it comes down to is, especially when you're dealing with something like what CERN was trying to do and deal with some of these tools and make them on their own. All this stuff, this it still produces sort of open-source environment. I think that's really important, and I'm glad it came up with computer science, and that's what makes it accessible.
0: Awesome. Um, I, I totally agree. And, and so I think that's a really good overview of kind of data science 101 and the sorts of fields that circle around this concept of data science. Thinking about now this 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 narrative thread of, hey, the fleet assets created an opportunity for us to collect a ton of data because of all the digital components in them. We're collecting this data now. Uh, there were some simple problems to solve based on, you know, just, Queries and aggregations, you know the data switchboard. Uh, I like that 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 term, Dan. Um, now, maybe we can talk a little bit more about where we see things going. What are the opportunities that the more sophisticated data science approaches um, give us with with fleet data? What what are some of the categories of things that fleet operators and owners can can look forward to over the next? Couple of years as data scientists start unlocking the data that's in their assets.
2: So I think right away, one of the things to immediately note about this is that it's all very this is a very fertile field essentially. So yeah, a lot of people haven't had access to this data, so there's actually a lot of room immediately to f- to find things.
1: Yeah, I think one of the kind of immediate exciting opportunities is just operational kind of visibility and operational intelligence. Um, just giving like fleet operators awareness into what's happening in their systems, but also being able to optimize from there. So I think one of my favorite use cases to kind of talk about with, with customers or just at all is kind of the ability to understand emissions a little bit better and like what are the impacts of a fleet's like operations on the environment and kind of how can we measure that? Can we forecast it like, are, are certain parts of the fleet doing better than others? And if so, why? Um, yeah, that that's one of my favorite use cases. But of course, there are other things like maybe, I don't know, I, I think just kind of being able to reduce costs or, or make sure that you're kind of maximizing your schedule for ridership, something like that, just a lot of like operational tweaks that could happen to kind of make sure that you're being cost effective, but also you're kind of providing a good experience for your, your customers and maybe being good to the environment or whatever other output you want.
0: For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, one of my favorite examples was the, what what you brought up, like fuel efficiency and starting to incorporate greener fuels into, uh, what, what locomotives are, um, are using, uh, for power and it's hard to answer the question of like well let's try this different fuel mixture or um, these additives uh, and and answer the question of did this move uh, optimize the thing we're trying to optimize for without collecting data? And, and so just the ability for people to run experiments, these like, you know, what they call, um, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, this industry, like AB tests, right? You, you run for a certain subset of your customers or for, in this case, your fleet, uh, you try something different. And because that's sort of like control and experiment group, you can see whether the, it made a meaningful change to the, to the thing you care about and whether that meaningful change was in a good direction or a bad direction. Um.
1: Yeah, I think, like, to that point, a lot of at least emissions things are reported now on, like, a yearly basis, and just the fact, like, I don't know, it's literally mind-boggling to me that we can kind of give real-time awareness to this, to something that the granularity has been, like, measured in years, and now we can hand it to them in, like, minutes, right? And this data was there the whole time. All we had to do was kind of plug into it, right?
0: Yep. I think maintenance is another one. Um, So simple data pipelining has solved so many problems for for our customers. Like oftentimes these digital components will actually throw error codes. You know, you think about the check engine light in your car. There's an analogy to that in like engine control units and braking systems um, on these platforms where they're saying, hey, something's wrong here. Like I need maintenance. Please come check it. For a lot of these fleet assets, there was no way for the maintenance section, or at least there's a very manual process for the maintenance section to understand the that condition on the asset and put it into their repair and ticketing system. Whereas if you're streaming this data off, you can you can you can automate that entire ticketing process and and you know within a minute you you um you generate a ticket and get this thing fixed.
1: And yeah. you can kind of trace, sorry, Dan, you, you can kind of trace back root cause, right? Like. Not, not only can predictions be made or like automating kind of maintenance tickets, but being able to really nail down what caused something is, but I don't know, requires data. And, and that's yep. something very powerful to give insight into.
2: Absolutely. it does. Um, You unique because a lot of times when you are trying to figure out what the root cause is, sometimes you'll just see error. A bunch of different errors are occurring. You need to keep doing fixes. Sometimes it's the same underlying root cause. Um, cars have a lot of analogies
1: with this. Um, if you if your shocks are shot,
2: um, you're going to start getting some weird errors over time because you're going to get loose wires and all these sorts of issues. And what you're what you're going to see is these errors keep repeatedly happening. And perhaps on a previous vehicle was the shocks that started going bad. And that's great. That's a great model. But sometimes you know when you don't have a ton of data, you can still make um, good inferences from what you do have in seeing, okay, everything's connected to uh, one system, and then what system is that that seems to be throwing, causing all these issues? What's that root cause? Um, absolutely.
0: Yeah, the context is really interesting, right? Uh, you know, to do root cause analysis and sort of post-hoc post analysis. The other thing, uh, Dan, that you alluded to is sometimes when you synthesize all of this data together uh, techniques like statistical process control um and and you know nailing down a particular measure that gives you and um gives you the power to determine a maintenance condition that maybe didn't throw a maintenance fault but you're able to say hey you know uh, this engine is um operating at a higher rpm for the same torque as the other engines in this fleet we think there might be some sort of you know fluid issue in in the engine like you need to go take this in early for for maintenance um or maybe based on you know gps location you know that an aircraft has been landing on semi-improved roads a lot uh and that means that the you know certain components which when you land on um, semi-improved surfaces going 200 miles an hour it's going to cause a lot more wear and tear and you need to bring that thing in for maintenance earlier. Uh, The electronic control units may not tell you that stuff, but um, you can, you can tease that out if you've, if you've designed good models based on, on, on the ancillary data that's available. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely start beginning to that. And some of the stuff at the lowest level are things that people are sort of aware that you can do to a degree or maybe not the engineers working on themselves or anything like that or they might have an idea about it, but it hasn't been done for a large group because some people haven't been, I guess there hasn't been as big of a motivation for certain devices when you can open things up. But until people actually see the value that you really unlock with, by applying these techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so I was in, for example, back in physics, physics days at Fermi Lab. Um, we were sort of forced to use some of these techniques, even when we didn't want to. Um, because we had a big particle accelerator beam coming in. The area is radioactive. Um, You don't want to touch things, so you still have to rely on whatever you're getting in for these pressure sensors. And then over time, what you actually find is, though, is once you start actually aggregating your pipeline and beginning to identify these features, you actually really begin to save and can begin to see these things far in advance in ways that are actually impossible to do without actually without constantly paying attention or anything like that. It's like, what's great, one of the things that's great about computers is they don't fatigue and they're reliable in the same way. they are gonna keep reporting and you always have an eye on this stuff. Um, And that really changes things and changes your chance of catching things by orders of magnitude. Um, and And you can really begin to run your operations fundamentally differently once you begin to start doing that.
0: Yeah, because you have a much more granular understanding of what's going on. You're operating with less uncertainty. And so your your sort of risk-reward trade-off uh, changes quite a bit, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, and, and I think what's also so fascinating to me about this space of operational technology data collection is what you've articulated, Dan, is, is really anomaly detection, right? In a lot of ways, a lot of these resolve down to Okay, we have a baseline for what normal parameters for for a platform or a piece of OT um, should look like. These are the these are the the, the sensor data readings or or um, you know functional groupings of measurements. This is what this th- th- this should look like, and then when there are deviations from that baseline, we take action. You know, the inference problem is: does this thing need to get fixed? You know, or do we need to make an operational? Um, uh, an operational decision based on the, the way that these uh, these things are operating. And that is not very different from the cybersecurity use case, right? So Ellie, this is something, you know, you, you live and breathe every day is thinking about ways of, okay, well, how do we assume compromise and have defense in depth and look at a, a signal, which could be, you know, the way that uh, an endpoint is running, the processes that are on a computer. It could be the traffic that's going over the wire. It could be net flow data. There's all these different measurements that you're taking from the system. And you look at those measurements, and you say, "Whoa! based on everything I know, this is, this is deviating substantially from the baseline. We think that there may be an intrusion on this piece of equipment. Let's go do an incident response. And so, I think for one of the first times in, in technology, what you're seeing is um, where kind of anomaly detection on IT networks didn't really make a big impact on business decisions. Like the fact that employees came in at 8.30 versus 8.45 or, or you know logging in to different IP addresses, like that doesn't really make huge operational impacts on a business. But it sure does when you're talking about a locomotive or you're talking about a piece of equipment that's generating widgets on an assembly line that that, that, that is the, the core competency of a business. And so because of where we're collecting this data from, these operational technology assets, all of a sudden I think there's – I think this is a, a new frontier of like data science of looking at the confluence of cybersecurity and operational intelligence coming from the same stream and using very similar techniques to just – essentially tease out anomalies from from what we're measuring?
1: Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things that are interesting here. Um, on one hand, I think in the IT world, especially in just like TCP IP networks, there are a lot of things that we can do that are like probabilistic measurements and it's still probably fine. And so what I mean by that is like, if if we kind of take this measurement and it's right like 90% of the time, that's good enough, right? I think that's not... Necessarily the case in OT, right? Like a lot of these are kind of critical systems, critical infrastructure, and we can't, like, ninety percent is not good enough. Ninety-nine percent is probably not good enough, right? Like we need those five nines or better
0: for false positives.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think it also begs the question of like, there, there's kind of the philosophy of like garbage in equals garbage out, right? Like we have to a be able to to collect the data, but b make sure that we kind of have a like a framework around the data that will give us the outputs that we want. Um, there's, there's one book that I know of by Danette Mack um, And she kind of talks about dimensions of data quality. And this is like, it's not just her talking about it. I think she does a great job, like distilling it into one book, but these are principles that we see everywhere, right? Like we need to make sure that our data is accurate. We need to make sure it's consistent. We need to make sure like it's easy to access. Is it relevant to the problems we're trying to solve? Is it like, duplicatable right like can we do we see it across the whole system and so kind of just making sure that we have this full picture in a way that will give us like a, a good false positive right so that we're not kind of providing bad data to to infrastructure that's critical um and making sure that we can like continuously learn from this right and, and improve our data science as we go I think those are kind of the the big things to me like the problem is a little bit more, I I keep saying critical, but it is like, we can't, we, we need a little bit better kind of accuracy in the OT space. I think in, in a lot of settings, maybe not all. And then we just need to make sure that like, we're thinking about this garbage in equals garbage out problem and viewing like the whole data ecosystem.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's an excellent point that false positives need to be contextualized. Like what is your appetite for false positive and in it, like if it's a cybersecurity setting, if you're not able to download an attachment from an email or access a website that you need to get to, it's annoying. Like it can it can definitely have impacts on, on your daily operation. But like if you accidentally drop a packet on a mission critical bus on an aircraft, like people can die. You know, we look at the Boeing 737 MAX 8 crash this was a nose cone sensor that had a false positive or was generating data that was erroneous and the 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 mcas system took over the autopilot to to keep keep it out of a stall condition but it wasn't in a stall condition so it just like you know kept um putting the aircraft in a really dangerous spot until it ultimately crashed right so
1: i was just gonna say to your point (laughs) um that that kind of begs another question that i think is really interesting and like the data science meets like automation space is we can provide these insights, but like to what extent do we want to make the decisions for the person, right? Right. So I don't know. That's another like interesting question that comes into play and is like especially important in these kind of critical scenarios.
2: Absolutely. I have another analogy that's being considered in the health space right now. Um, just going back to more general data science these uh, rule c- kind of things. Um, One of the things being reconsidered, for example, is how is cancer testing and false positive rates? How often do you want to do that? Because we're beginning to hit the point where they believe that a lot of the mental and psychological tools that's being applied to people, in many cases, are actually finally beginning to outstrip the advantages of catching potential cancers earlier on. So decreasing testing. Um, And then the other damage of people not... um, be, if you give too many false positives, people stop believing them as well. Um, you begin to under, undermine your own purpose. So it's always, that's always a careful balance that you have to strike when doing these sort of uh, valuations. That can be very tricky. And then when you're dealing with these numbers, you start dealing with super rare events, uh, it becomes very hard for our brains to really contextualize them, like with numbers that weigh off your normal baseline um, so it's that's always an interesting place to deal with and try to manage and make decisions well because you well you can always almost always guarantee improvement in some direction it's hard to actually know what sort of the net gain you're actually providing is.
0: Yeah, and Dan, you you brought up a really interesting discussion within data science communities, which is like the role of Bayesian statistics versus more frequentist approaches to solving inference problems. Uh, Could you dive into that a little bit and give us a sense of what the high-level argument is and where those tools may or may not be appropriate? I know this is sort of a religious war among statisticians, but... uh,
2: It is. It's a different rule in uh, physics because of quantum physics. So in Bayesian statistics, for those people, so for those who don't know you, have something called a prior distribution, you sort of are coming in with, so way to put this in a sort of a student mathematical function um, or form that you can base what you're doing off of and then manipulate torque in these different directions. Uh, Frequent statistics basically say, okay, there's, you need an underlying true distribution. In In Bayesian statistics, You can have a probability distribution of um, bouncy balls on the moon um, acting in different ways. That's a nonsensical question in frequentist statistics because that hasn't happened, nor will it probably ever happen. Um, It's sort of nonsensical to make conjectures on it. Um, Now, in general, when you're dealing with things like naïve, Bayesian models and dealing with uh, system um, Boltzmann machines and things like that, I would say that your machine learning is sort of drifted pure into sort of accepting Bayesian statistics in general. Um, And that's not too surprising given some of the underlying models that people base or inspire these systems in some ways are Bayesian because I would say quantum physics is entirely Bayesian. It says that the reality is fundamentally Bayesian you have a probability of bouncy ball quantum tunneling to the moon. Now, granted, you are not going to be able to express that with normal numbers because it's so low. You would need to do something utterly ridiculous, like exponential, exponential, exponential power through stacking them up. But you have, it's there. There, But there is definitely, there is an argument to be made. And I would say that you need to, you know, it's I would definitely say it's about judging the problem that you're dealing with. Um, and understanding sort of the role of empiricism in making conjectures and what you're trying to do. I would definitely, in a weird way, I would say it also matters for things like policy a bit more um, when you're trying to go forward with these things because some people do see modeling things off of a prior as, and it can be argued, as sort of a, um, you're not really following empiricism that way. So there is is definitely a religious divide in statistics, um, but in practical application, I would say it's a little bit less so. And and I think when this is where you see some of the statistics of computer science come in, where they come from a space where experimentation is very fast, right? And so anybody who's those so people who I know who are in that or taught me learn from, um, definitely take the role of, okay, no, if you have an idea like that, you go out, you just need to try it and go and experiment if it works great. And that's a different philosophy, completely different philosophy than even statistic in statistics in general. So, and in a lot of sciences.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a, variation of the scientific method in some ways, right? Like you're supposed really to, is. yeah. I mean, like, you know, rather than saying I have a hypothesis about this, I collect data and I'm going to make an inference about whether there's evidence for that hypothesis or not. You sort of have some prior belief about the state of things. Um, you know, I, I have a prior belief that this uh, break might be is, is you know, it's, there's a 60% chance this break is in a, a state where it needs to get maintained given that. Uh, I collect some data and then I update my belief, right? And so, um, just different kinds of models for different kinds of problems. To your point, it's really important that uh, when you're trying to solve a problem with with data science with with these models, you pick the right model. But it's also pro- important, to your point, Ellie, that you put good um, inputs into that uh, into that model. Uh, garbage in is definitely going to yield garbage out, and so um, there are some challenges with with uh, Getting, getting good clean data off of these off of these systems, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time with, with some of these systems, reverse engineering protocols and building um, building the software that translates the bits and bytes on the wire into something that people and algorithms can understand. Um, what other kinds of data pre-processing uh, do, do you typically see in, in ge- data science in general? And, and then you know maybe a couple of examples for fleet assets. So in data mining in general, I mean, most of, I
2: would say, data scientists work and overall is going to be cleaning the data. Um, you're going to get a lot of, so the fact is, with your data, you always have a lot of garbage. Um, and a lot of times you have to make sure that you're dealing with that garbage. Um, so some of the simplest, simplest examples are when you have somebody submitting data, but they didn't sanitize it. Um, that's an age-old example, right? Um, you'll, you'll run into it on forums all the time. Somebody's trying to save a JSON file with it, on, or CSV, CSV, and then they have commas and spaces all over the place, or tabs. Separa- oh man, I've had some of the worst luck with some of these weird tab-separated files. And this was by a professional company, but we—I remember having to derive sort of a formula to try to, to figure out exactly what combination of characters were input at this point, because it was clearly was saved, modified and saved again a few times. And so we had some rule of like, okay, there's when there's six spaces in a row, it was actually a tab mixed
0: up with an incorrect character at the start. Um, you need like data science to sanitize the data to put into your other data science algorithms. It's just turtles all very the way meta. down. Yes, very yeah. meta. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but in terms of what we're doing, a lot of it's about trying to understand, I'd say, the per- underlying protocols and what's actually being said. Because, um, you know, what's, what. you can deal with just pure data streams and try to make conjectures on that. But what's even better is if you actually understand what they're saying. Um, we're trying to say.
1: I think part of that in fleets, not even like specific to fleets, this is kind of all technology, but we talked a little bit earlier about specifications. Um, And so for a lot of protocols, there is like this open source specification that defines like exactly what the messages should look like and, you know, how many bits are kind of saved for each portion of that, which is awesome, but that's on paper and that has to be implemented and, and it doesn't always get implemented exactly to spec so kind of sussing out like, okay, what is this supposed to be? What is this trying to say? You know, like what parts of the specification map to the actual like implementation um, can be another challenge. i just trying to make sure that all of that is like mapped to the correct thing to feed into to data models um, can be a challenge.
2: Especially when you're just trying to read off data, you're expected to follow a certain format and then something in there doesn't follow that rule. Um, very, com- very common in it because usually, yeah, you have a general open form, which most things you're going to follow, but then you almost always have proprietary editions. Um, and I don't, I don't think we've not seen a proprietary edition.
0: Great. Well, I, so I think a lot of people are interested in data science these days, for a lot of the reasons we talked about that all the assets around us are generating data now. And so there's just a playground for people that are interested in different kinds of things to start hacking on projects and and, and, and stuff that they're passionate about, whether that's music or it's sports or home automation or whatever, people are starting to get into it. What are some resources that people can look at to start getting more involved with, with data science?
2: One of the things, as I mentioned earlier, is that there are, a lot of things which are open source out there. Um, I absolutely recommend people look at the websites like Kaggle competitions. Um, they go through, if you even are just online, you can see people's data science blogs. You can see um, subreddits dedicated to that and machine learning. And one of the things I also make sure to keep up, but it's an evolving field, as I said, like it's newer. You need to be keeping up on, Uh, What's changing, what's happening, like with, um, for example, on archive.org, you have machine learning papers always coming out um, and new techniques that are worth keeping up with. Um, And also a lot of new resources coming out every day. Right now, one of the big changes is we're having our first data science courses being put out by larger reputable universities. Um, which is brand new. Now, we still had some degrees coming out from smaller, especially online universities and things like that early on, but it's something that's going to be rough at the start, and then it's going to keep evolving. There are definitely statistics resources out there, Um, uh, books and things like that people should get familiarized themselves with, especially at theoretical level. Um, Math, mathematics, there's a lot in there to learn the basics of and get a feeling for. As well as computer science, um, getting some understanding some of your basic graph theory, um, machine learning, and you definitely want to find resources on linear algebra. Basic linear algebra, I would say, something that comes up a lot. Um, so because there's just it's just a combination of so of a lot of different things is big idea, and then also and then and then big part of it is just practicing and going through these projects and seeing what has been done before and trying to keep up with what's currently on like. Things I've seen, I've seen things change over the last year or two of what resources are relevant. Um, like when I was in grad school, TensorFlow came out and that wasn't a thing. And now really, PyTorch, for example, if you're listening today, that's going to be one of your premier uh, tools for machine learning. That's entirely, again, open source, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. That where you can you can just kind of get on there and start using deep learning right off the bat. Um, if you're new, scikit-learn, another great package that's important to know, numpy, um, which is related to Python, which I mean, which is related in many ways to C-like structures, um, not like scython, which is a C-based Python going on
1: there. Um, very key library. So understand. Pandas is another big one for data frames that
2: people should experiment with. Yeah, and then there's several plotting ones like Seaborn. Uh, Matt lab. Yeah. Matt plot Yeah. Matt
1: Plotlib. I think um, from, from like the engineering side too, and that's just where my brain lives. Cause that's my, my background. Um, I'm kind of like a kinesthetic person, right? Like I like to do it and that helps me to understand. So I think all of the things that Dan has been mentioning that are related to software libraries, like one of the most powerful resources is just searching GitHub, right. And seeing what projects are out there and, Mm -hmm. kind of playing with those and helping to get familiar with like pandas and TensorFlow. Um, that's really helpful. I think also to like being a kinesthetic person, there's an MIT, um, website called elegant neural network user interface and they, they abbreviate it E N N U I. Um, but you can like drag and drop layers and drag and drop like activations and train models. And it kind of like there's documentation, but you also can see it visually, which I found to be really That's helpful
2: cool. learning as well. Oh, that, that is cool, yeah. I mean, as I said, like, there are just tools coming out all the time and being active, looking, trying to join communities, really fundamental aspect to this. Right now, universities are behind. You can still great, learn some great fundamentals as I said with, you know, math and statistics, computer science, great to learn conceptually and, really, and build up a good foundation. Because they change how you see problems and a good place to try to learn how to learn. But if you want to be up and go the data science route, I'd say those those are some of the most important things.
0: Yeah, and Kaggle is one of my favorite resources too for experimentation. You can get on there and do the tutorials and they have um, basically competitions. And you can actually, if you get good enough at it, you can win money. So companies will put challenges up there and you can apply different techniques and submit your your solution and if you do well enough uh and and you win you can you can get like real money
2: even if you're not a top performer i will say quickly back haggle it you're still building up you can still build up a github library like a github resume or
0: portfolio for sure for sure totally right about that awesome well dan ellie uh this has been great thank you so much for for coming on and i hope to have you on again very soon Thanks, Josh. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.